I begin to speak only when I'm certain what I'll say isn't better left unsaid. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum. And on this episode of the podcast, we have the legendary coach, Dan Fitcher. Dan is a high school football coach and the owner of Wanna Get Fast, a private training center focused on neurodynamic speed and strength training for athletes. On this episode of the podcast, Coach takes us down the rabbit holes of just how he makes people fast, why he believes the traditional model of periodization and training is wrong, and how he goes about implementing ISOs, oscillations, and rebound reps to build freaky fast athletes. This podcast was chocked full of absolute gold that I'm really still digesting and implementing into my training model, and I hope you guys get as much out of this as I did. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for the continued support. Keep chopping wood. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with the Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines that includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite-level guests to unravel what high performance really is. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Great to be here. It's great to be here. Yeah, I was just telling you how uh, one of your coaches DM'd me and was telling me to check out your Patreon page, and he's like, he's doing a lot. Of, uh, you're doing a lot of the uh, ISO stuff that we're doing over here. Like, you got to check it out. And I've been checking out all the stuff there, the drop catches, the rebounds, the ISO holds, man. So much of that is so cool. And it it seems like very similar to a lot of the things that we're doing here. And you've just been doing it for a much longer time. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> I, was, I was on a podcast the other day and the guy introduced me and he's like, well, what do you think about that introduction? I'm like, well, sounds great, but I'm old. But all the things that I, the people I've learned from, the places I've been, just got a lot of years under my belt. Well, that's, that's something I'm always interested in diving into. So I had uh, Zach Evanish on the podcast uh, mm-hmm. two podcasts ago, and that was the same one where it's like kind of like a generational coach. Like he's seen, he's seen generations and waves of this. Um, and obviously two different sectors Like you have the more of that power building, like power lifting cycle. And then you have the, the ISOs and rebounds here, but I'm interested in how, like through these generations, how you've got to where you've got to with your thought process. And one of the cool things I really like that you, you posted like your 20 rules. You're like, I posted this like 10 years ago and it still applies today. So like you still have your principles, like your 20 principles that you're applying to, but obviously like with all of the knowledge that you're gaining throughout these years, you're changing things. So how do you approach that? How have you got to kind of where you've got to with your thought process and your approach while sticking to your principles without getting drawn into like the new wave of things, the new knees over toes, the new, like all these new, like fancy things that a lot of young coaches get drawn into. Um, I think when you have solid principles behind what you do, you'll see 
the things that you do recycle themselves over the years and years, right? So, so it all started with with Jay Schroeder um, back a long time ago, probably over twenty years ago, um, with DV Hammer, and you know, with, with the research with both of those two, two different people, um, very similar training beliefs, but really different in the same breath, right? So it was cool to see the things that they had in common, but it was, it was even more cool to see what they, what made them different. Um, and Jay always used to say, you know, you look at systems at where they fail and then you start from there. And, um, I think I've been able to see a lot of different systems and take positive things from each system, um, to kind of create my own. And again, you know, when, when you hear me talk, it's, probably about 10 to 12 different unbelievable strength and speed coaches around the world um, that have, I've been blessed to be able to talk to and, and spend time with from Mel Sif to Jay Schroeder to DB Hammer to you name it. Some of the best in the field right now that I don't even believe in what they do, but I believe in how they coach and, and how they manage athletes. Um, because I think that's a huge part of it too, is the relationships you have with kids and, and the kids that you're training and, um, you know, how you can get your message across. I mean, it's teaching. Absolutely. And, and I'm interested in always like Dre Schroeder and DB hammer, like that's still like the rebel mindset, like to get to that coach. And you're talking about how you've had the pleasure of like learning from him, getting information from him. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not like a mainstream coach and and like it, it, and even you and I, like, we, we know him and we know like all the good stuff, but it's not like you pick a random person off the street, even a random coach off a of college. And most yeah. of them will not know who he is. How did you get into the, like the original mindset, especially back in the day of like, I'm going to follow this guy, or I even heard about this guy. Like, wh- how did you get into that mindset and into the rabbit hole in the first place? Yeah, it, it started with, with just playing and training and, and trying to be the best that I could be and try to experiment with a lot of different things. I mean, I kind of worked my way through my own training figuring out a few things. And here's one of the things I figured out. Like when I was in high school, I was fast. I was probably a, I don't know, maybe a four, six guy, which is a fast high school kid. Um, But I always felt like I could go faster. I started to run track. I think I maybe ran 10, seven in high school, 10, eight. That's pretty fast. Not, not a world-class sprinter by any means. Then I got to college and I never had really weight trained before. And the first, I'll never forget this first time I picked up two and a quarter, they said, okay, we're going to see how many times you can bench this. I think I was 160 pounds. As fast as the guy, the strength coach handed it to me, it fell on my chest. I couldn't do it once. And then from a squatting standpoint, I was athletic so I could squat. It was decent strength, but it was a first year in a strength program where my speed went through the roof. Like I went from four, six to, I was running legit four fours all the time. And, you know, at first I thought, oh, I got strong. That's what it was. Then, so so then my college career kicked in. I started to train with this wrestler who is now the, um, he's a javelin, U.S., not javelin, U.S. pole vault coach, Rick Schur, right? So I started training with him. He was, he played my position in college. So we'd always compete against each other. And he was a big wrestler and he knew how to train hard. So I got into that whole mentality of training really hard, getting really strong, and it was working for me. Um, And then I started to realize, okay, I've gotten this much stronger and now I haven't gotten any faster. 
So what do I do? So then we started running downhill, uphill, bungee cord pulling. We did all kinds of crazy shit. And then it was funny because years after that, I'm reading the research on it going, man, I was ridiculous. I was running down hills. I was running four zero forties running downhill. I'd time them going downhill because I wanted to feel like what it would feel like to run that fast. And then I'd, I'd bungee pull three eight forties, three nine forties, and I wouldn't fall. So I knew I thought I had the capability of doing that. Um, I always knew that if I could squat 315 for three sets of 20 repetitions, that I was plenty strong enough to run fast. So then we just started screwing around with all the overspeed stuff. And I ended up running a 4-1 in the Toronto Argonauts camp. And I said, okay, this is, I, I've gotten myself faster. I, again, I, genetically, I was fast. I, I think 4-6 is a fast person, but I think I made myself elite by doing some of the things. So then you start backing up and going, okay, what did I do here? Why did I do this? What worked? What didn't work? Um, when did I start getting hurt? And what do I think caused that? And then you just start formulating things. And then as you're researching it, that's when the internet started coming up. I found Chris Corpus. We started talking, we started researching, my career ended. And then it was just all, I want to know what makes people fast, what makes them strong. And then it just started going, traveling all over the world. And then, and that's our, that's how our company want to get fast came up. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Cause I want to get fat. That's it. I didn't want anything else. I just want to run fast. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So that, that's, that's the question I posed for you. Like, how do we get fast then? Like this, we, we, we have all these, like, you see all these speed coaches and you speed to see all, like all these things out there. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, there's so many different ways, so many different ways that people are preaching fast. Some are saying it's all technique. Some are say, um, that we just need to get stronger. Some are saying it's the, the in the ISO and rebound world. Uh, very few are saying that actually, but that's where I'm getting into like the rabbit <laughs> hole now. But like, yeah. how do we get fast? Like what's what's the principle behind that? And why are we implementing some of the things that we're implementing uh, nowadays to get fast? I think one of the things that really drew me to DB Hammer was his idea of what makes people fast. And I, and I think his answer was the best I've heard from anybody in the business. And he simply said, listen, it's all individual. And then I started thinking to myself, okay, yeah, it was because I wasn't strong. I got strong and I got faster. And then I didn't get any faster. And then I started doing other stuff and I got faster. So it's very individual at the moment in time of whatever you're producing at that time. Right? So some people are really strong. And if you give them strength work, they ain't going to get any faster. Some people are really explosive and springy. If you give them springy work, they ain't going to get any better. And that's as simple as that sounds. This country has been struggling with that concept because you have these people in these camps, the strength camp, the speed camp, the form. Camp. I mean, the form camp is ridiculous. You see track coaches who've never run fast in their life telling people exactly the proper form to run fast. You got to run on the balls. You got to lift your knees. And I'm thinking to myself, no, the kid's running on his heels to piss you off. No, he can't. He can't absorb the force in his feet. So what does he do? He deflects to his heels. So it, it was a matter of where you are in time and what your body is able to do. And it's all about collision management. I mean, you, your body is colliding with the ground. How do you handle that? And it's like that for any sport, football. When someone smashes into you, how do you handle that collision? Do you get knocked over? Do you absorb it? Do you create it after you get hit? So it's all about collision management training. 
Yeah. And one of the things I want to touch on there is, and this is something that it's, it's basically, it's just the simple law of diminishing returns too. It's something that like, like you said, it should be so simple, but like we, we, we tried to go like, and I, I try to like think about this. It's like, we like doing things we're good at. So like the strong person mm-hmm. likes lifting weights and, and they're, they're going to keep doing lifting weights and they're going to keep calling that the grind. When, like you said, like what they need to do is probably more elastic work or maybe more ISO work or more, maybe more expansive work, but they won't do what they're shit at to go from shit to suck because they're shit at it. Like they don't want to look bad at it. So right. I think that's like a big piece of it is like people like being good at what they're good at, but that's not what's going to bring like continuing to do what you're good at is not going to make you great. Like bringing up some of the things you're shit at or some of the things that you suck at bringing those thing up is going to weigh bring your like tied up to good. Like you bring your good to great. And like the psychology behind it, like you just have to understand that rather than continuing to beat down what you're already good at. Right. That's the truth. And it's, Sometimes that's a mentality. Like I'll tell you, the wrestler that I was training with, was, we were really good at doing all kinds of different things. But every time we train, I'd look at him and go, you know what? I want to wrestle you. And he's like, why would you want to wrestle? I'll kill you. I'm like, I, I kind of know that, but I want to wrestle you anyways, because maybe I'm not good at that. And I want to get better at it. So why not go against him? But he was a fantastic wrestler, one of the best in the country at his body weight. So we got all done training. And that's when I ran my 4-1. And I said, okay, now I've reached the pinnacle for that. I want to wrestle you. And the same result happened that I knew was going to happen. He smashed me. But I had to, it was that I want to do what I'm not good at. I want, I want to experience that. That that's what I love chasing. And um I, there's not a lot of people out there like that. Um, that's why in this business, it's really hard to train kids the right way because you know, if I tell most kids that come into my program, you're going to really not run. You're going to do a lot of extreme isometrics. You don't make any money. Nobody wants to hold a position for three minutes and sit there and then say you're going to get faster. You know, and your parent, the parents calling you, oh, I can see a change in his running form. You know, I know you're really working on that. No, we haven't run at all with him. He's getting better because we're holding positions. We're understanding the body better. Um but once they get past that stage and they get some more advanced work, then they're, they're loving it because now it's a challenge to them and it looks cool. Um, your training's got to look cool for people to like it. Yeah, right? absolutely. And, uh, when you go in the gym and you bench press two and a quarter, 30 times, it looks really cool to people. But that really doesn't make you a better player, you know? And when, when you have athletes coming in, how are you determining kind of what they suck at? Like, is yeah. it just like... Like, how are you doing that? Is it just, is it just typical, like me walk, like the compressive meathead me walking in? You're like, that dude needs to do more expensive work and the tall, long guy. Or do you have tests for this? Is it coach I Like, how are you, how are you approaching that? Yeah. So, so right now the two guys that are working in my gym, they go through a whole battery of tests and they can figure out where you lie on that spectrum of strength and speed. Right. So we call it neural duration and neural rate. Neural rate is just the ability to turn on and turn off. It'd be like tap dancing right? The ability to just turn your turnover. Um, and then neural duration, meaning the strength and the stabilization that you have, um, you know, how strong you are. And somewhere along the line, you're going to fall in there. And we create programs based off of where you are on that continuum. And um, at this point now in my career, I can basically look at someone, you know, if I get a guy coming from, you know, the two-time state champion, New York state champion football program. I know they hang and bang and grind. I know they're plenty strong enough. So we ain't giving them any of that. Right. And they, they come in and, you know, they want to show me how much they can bench and squat. And I'm like, listen, you're coming to me for a reason. What you're doing isn't working. Why would I want to keep doing the same thing? 
to show you that I can do the same thing your coaches do where it doesn't work. So again, it's very individual, but at some point they fall in a line of how they produce force and how they absorb force. And right, right around that area is where you train them. Now you still give them strength work and the stuff they're good at, but you layer in the stuff that they're not good at and you start throwing that at them. And it's amazing what happens. And so I, the, the amount of times I, so I posted that I was having you on the podcast and the amount of times, like I got DMS asking about what, like the real reason that we do ISOs, the real reasons we do rebounds, the real reasons we do drop catches. Like they were, they were flooding the DMS asking me yeah. to ask you about that. Could you dive into kind of why you approach that one? I'm interested first off into the origins of this. Like I, I know mm-hmm. you're Jay Schrader, but the, some of the origins are like how you started implementing these things. Just for me personally, the story behind that. And then to, what like what's the purpose to these to these methods? Because you you see like you see a big barbell back squat, and most coaches be like, "Wow, like look at the force!" And it's it's very spectacular in front of your eyes. You see an athlete just holding a position, and it's like, okay, like why are we doing? Like you said, the same with the parents. I'm sure you have to deal with it with the parents. Like yeah. that athlete just sitting there, or the athlete themselves. Like we're just sitting here when that athlete's lifting 500 pounds. Like what's <laughs> the real reason behind like the why behind a lot of this? Well, so first of all, when I when I started doing anything or studying anything, I had to do it myself. Right. So, you know, when it was Jay Schroeder and nobody else was emailing him or calling him or talking to him, it was me. So I was kind of like the whipping boy. It was, <laughs> you go hold an isometric push up and film it and send it to me. So I'd be holding it, you know, I first start minute, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, sending him videos 12 minutes long of me holding an ISO push up. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? What you're not doing it right. He every single time he'd send, I'd send something to him. He'd tell me I'm not doing it right, and then he'd berate me. And that was just the relationship we had. Um, but when you start to do them, you start to understand exactly what's happening. And in my travels, in my research, and now looping back into this neurological stuff that I'm doing, it all links back to it's not about the contraction it's how fast you can relax it's how fast you can lengthen and these things are all driven through the reflex arcs right so what we consider a squat of going down and up in jay's mind was no you pull yourself down with your hamstrings that's knee flexion that's the that's the role nobody goes into knee flexion when they're squatting they use their quads to break themselves on the way down. But if you think about that, that's the muscle that's trying to push you up. So you're putting your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. Instead of pulling yourself into position with your hamstrings, lengthening the quads, they're already going to be firing a little bit because of gravity in the position you're in, but you're going to have way more contractile fibers able to contract when you reverse the motion. So it's, it's actually teaching your body a new way, a new way to move. And the way you do that best in motor learning is isometrics. Okay. So, so the brain knows the end range of motion. It fills in the middle. So he used to say the start, right, end, right, everything else in the middle is minutia. doesn't matter. And he's kind of right. He really is. After all the time I've been doing this, he's right. If you can show me positions to start and positions to end, you're going to be in pretty good shape when it comes to movement. So the brain completes the circuit. And with these, 
So you, you're pushing these ISOs in these positional, these positions that we're, we're trying to find the, these end range positions. And one of the cool ones you talked about the squat. I, I listened to the, the Patreon video on that. And that, that was really yep. cool how you're talking about the hamstrings turning on in a squat rather than like, and uh, what was it? The, the, but you had like this band setup that I was trying out too. And I was like, wow, that, that is, uh, that is different being able to do that a different position rather than just the straight quads going all the way up, but trying to master this, this end range. How do you know when it is mastered? Like, how do you know when, like, is, is it a light ball moment for you with the athletes? Is it the, the athletes like, wow, I feel that differently. Or is it just watching them? You were doing these isometrics, these positional isometrics, and we're watching a move after you're like, okay, that's the middle ground. When we're watching you move, that's the middle ground that you have figured out. We have, we have understood that now. You begin, you begin to move is more cleaner. You just, you just do. So like, we'll go from isometrics of holding these positions into what we call quick style. And we've gone through it on the Patreon. And in a quick style, you're you're understanding now the end range and then what muscles produce force and absorb force and how you move to stop in each joint position. When you do that and you understand the end range, you, you just move into position flawlessly. Um, and it, it's, I, I wouldn't have believed that until I've put people through just extreme ISOs and then have them go out and run and they run faster because the contractions that are happening, they're oscillating between quads and hamstrings around the knee. Everything is going on. I don't know how many Hertz is going back and forth in terms of these contractions, but it's they're high speed contractions when you're holding these ISO extremes. Um, and, and that in itself is the reason why you can train them all the time because you're recovering at the same time you're training. So my training and recovery is very similar. So my football team will do extreme isometrics the day after a game for recovery. And it's amazing because they complain while they're doing it. And then the next day they're like, man, I feel great. There's no soreness. The other day we were doing a workout that was for performance and all the kids are like, oh, I've got basketball practice tonight. I'm going to be dead. They were great. They were great because if you do ISO extremes the correct way, you'll have minimal fatigue, minimal soreness, anything. So what the body responds to high velocity movements. And once you once you get that like feeling of it too, like you said, like that there is there's not the soreness and it's almost like prime is kind of like the priming word is kind of butchered nowadays but it, you you feel almost like primed for a lot of these things i specifically for me it's almost like the day after like you mentioned like if i'm holding like a i really like ending my upper body days in quotations with like long iso lunges before sprint day and mm -hmm. the sprint day the next day every every time feels better like feels like like and more bouncy more fluid everything feels better with that and like you said if you're going off straight exercise science books straight and like uh biomechanic books like your your uh, time under tension is going to be too much like you you're um you're going to be super sore the next day you shouldn't do legs twice in a row but like you feel better it's, it's like that primed effect for it um when you're when you're implementing these things what does like the training session look like you because you you said that you're still implementing these barbell weights but you are able to use these isos every single day so are we using the same kind of isometrics pretty much every single day and trying to hit them as often as possible with the athletes and then sprinkling in the weights for like, kind of like just to get their heads like head on right there or maybe yeah. to build up some armor or how are you kind of like implementing that in the day-to-day -day, um, sessions? There'll be extreme isometrics in every workout that we do, whether it's to start or to finish. They'll be, they'll, I'll put them in the middle. Everything else that I do and I, and I'm not as, um, have you heard any of Chris Corpus's stuff? A little bit. Okay. So Chris is, is one of my really close friends. We're really close. We've been on the same journey for a really long time together. 
and we share a lot of the same training philosophies. He is anti-squat. He does not squat. I'm not there because I think that ISO extremes and the ability to enhance your gait pattern is so much more important and overriding than any bilateral movement that could crush it that why not just do it, make the kids happy, make them, oh yeah, my bench press went up or my squat went up and they think they think something. Like my football team would say, oh, my bench press went up 100 pounds. I could give two shits about your bench press or your or your squat for that matter. However, I do realize that, you know, if you, it, it, you're going to keep coming back and keep working hard at what we're doing if you see those numbers go up, right? So I tell people all the time, it's really easy to get strong it's really hard to get fast. It's really hard because they're the neurological inverse, right? You're creating tension and strength. You want to release it in speed. So you have to make sure you're giving your body both. And when you do these extreme isometrics, you really are teaching your brain how to do that because you're lengthening muscles that normally shorten in those conditions, right? So it's kind of interesting. I tell people all the time, and I think I did this on my Patreon page, put that band around your knees around the back of your legs and squat when your hamstrings are active and see what happens to your range of motion. See what happens to the pressure on your knees. Somebody's got knee pain, put those bands behind their knees, step away, let them squat. You activate their hamstrings for them. Tell them to go in the squat. They'll be like, I have no pain. Right. Cause your hamstrings doing what it's designed to do, which is to support your knee. Yeah, so. it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty wicked drill. As soon as I saw it, I I, I hopped in and did. It. I'm like, wow, that, yeah. that that that's that's interesting. Um, you you talk, you you've mentioned a couple times like the the barbell lifts are kind of just to keep the kids happy. Is that fully to keep the kids happy? Like if if you had a kid, let's say you have, a, I know it's you don't have a robot, but let's say you had a robot, yep. you had a guy that was totally invested in what you're doing. Are you doing any barbell lifts with them, or is it all? Are we just going to straight up work extreme isometrics, or do you find is there any benefit in the barbell lifts other than a psychological benefit? Um, I like I like the barbell lifts. I, I like the barbell lifts in reactive modes when we can start to add weight, when they start to, again, manage these collisions. Once you can manage your body weight, then it makes sense to load it, right? So, you know, even if we're doing like a, a split squat, um, reactive split squat cycle, I'll load it if they feel, if I feel like they can hit positions, if they're elastic as they can be, I'll start loading it and I'll load it until the elasticity goes away. Then I back off and boom, that's their weight. I don't know if that's 10%, 20%, 30%, nor do I care. What I care about is, are they driving the car correctly? Right. And you can tell because you'll lose that static spring effect. And as soon as that's done, whether I'm cutting volume off, whether I'm changing an exercise, whether we're rotating an exercise, something's changing when that elasticity is gone that's sport that's sport and basically you're managing the collisions with the ground sometimes you have load on your back sometimes you don't sometimes the load comes at you from the side in a perturbation sometimes you know um i'm i'm changing the load by closing your eyes or stimulating your vestibular system that's all load management absolutely and and when you when you're doing these things how are you driving intent without it being through loading? So it, like, that's like, you have the intent, like if you, if you continue to load up, cause that, that was one of the questions I had, you, you were talking about loading up the, these elastic type movements. I'm like, well, how mm -hmm. do you continue to load it up without them? Just like, cause as soon as you start loading it up, like I have athletes like this all the time. I'm like, okay, especially if we have a super cap machine. We'll do some stuff. And they just start loading like four forty fives, and it just turns into, I'm like, no, that's not our goal. Like we're goal right. is to say springy, like, 
how are, how are you driving that intent without them just turning it back into like, cause they it's, it's tangible for them. The more weight they do, the more intent they have, like the more it thought, how are you driving it to where like you you're driving intent behind that elasticity for them to understand that and really be really buy in and get that rather than just see more like, Hey, I'm now doing it with 50 pound dumbbells instead of 20 pound dumbbells, but it's way slower and crappier, but in their head, they're doing it with fifties now. Well, I think you have to have clear intent. I think there has to be a goal. Here's what the movement's going to look like. Now, your movement's going to look different than Johnny's over here. However, there's a goal, and the goal is the elasticity of the movement. As soon as that's gone, you can no longer put weight on. You got to go backwards until you can show me the bounce. You want to lift heavy weights? Bounce for me. That's what it is. And, um, you know, I... That's why I love oscillating isometrics. And we got into it this month. And I mean, oscillating isometrics are sport. It's it's you're starting with tension already. Then there's a voluntary contraction. Then there's a momentary relaxation. And then there's a spring off the bottom. And when you teach a kid how to do oscillating isometrics, and again, I'm not saying my way is the perfect way to do it. But in my system, if you learn how to do oscillating isometrics, you've learned how to change direction. You've learned how to apply force to the ground. You've learned everything about sport that's inherent to the goals that you're setting. It's about turning on and turning off at high velocities in extreme positions. That's what I love about oscillating isometrics. So, you know, once they, they've mastered position and then we get into um, absorbing that force in that position, you can almost see when they land from an altitude drop, there's a little rebound. Once you see that rebound, they're ready for reactive work. That's awesome. I, I love yeah. that. One of, one of the things you touched on earlier, you were talking about how you can do these, you can do these isometrics pretty much every day. And one of the the quotes on your like 20 rules of training that I really liked mm-hmm. was like that train hard every day. And I, I've been talking to a couple of coaches recently about this is like, we're so, we're, we're so kind of like, we, we, we were so worried about overtraining that we are, everybody's undertrained. Like every, yeah. almost every athlete I have is like so undertrained and it's like, well, like when are we going to deload? When are we going to like taper? When we like, we, what rest days are we doing high, low? It's like, bro, like, bro, you're, you have a 12 inch vert and you're 25, you have 25% body fat. Like, like we got it. We just got to right. train. We are not worried about any of that. Right. Um, but anyways, I really like that you talked about train hard every day. What does that kind of mean for you? How is that kind of butchered in our world of sports performance? And how are you kind of how are you kind of if, getting your athletes to buy into this? If if I could say if I could change that quote a little bit, like a, over time, it would be train velocity, train at velocity as much as you can. Um, so Charlie Francis talked about this a lot, and and Jay touched on it. Two completely different training philosophies. But they they kind of, again, if you go back and you study these things, it's where they fail, where they succeed, and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. So Charlie Francis used to say, you know, we're going to do our tempo work under 75% of your maximum, okay? We're going to do our speed work over 93% of your maximum, okay? In the middle, Jay Shorter would say, that breeds inflammation. You either better be way below it, or way above it, that 93%. In the middle, causes movement compensatory patterns, causes local inflammation, causes the body not to recover at the same extent you're training it. Meaning, so if you start training mid-range stuff, 73 and above to 93, right in that range, it's the garbage range. I've heard Braz talk about it in Olympic lifting. I've heard Jay Shorter talk about it in his training. Charlie Francis mentioned it 
in his high load training training. But what they're talking about is that mid-range shit creates compensatory patterns. And the more you give it that, that's when you become overtrained. But you're really undertrained with a whole bunch of garbage. You give it high velocity, your organs, your tissues, your muscles all recover at the same time. They don't, you didn't stimulate a little bit of it at 80% and then a little bit of it at 70%. So this one's recovering at this. They're all being stimulated maximally. When that happens, you recover maximally. That's the theory behind it. And um, I believe with extreme isometrics and sprinting at, at maximal velocity, you can do that. What what would be some of these for the coaches listening? What would be the comp some of the common mid range shit that you see coaches doing? Oh shit! Repeat four <laughs> hundreds, um, getting in there and benching and just not, I don't know benching seventy percent of your one rep max and just doing it. I'm gonna do five reps here and I'm gonna do three reps here. Train maximal again, whether it's it's the velocity behind the bar moving or whether it's the load that's maximum. Something's got to stimulate your hormones something and it ain't <laughs> it ain't 50 percent on the bar so i would say that in the weight room and and then just a bunch of submaximal plyometrics um the, the track coaches are the biggest ones to i mean they're they spend so much time running mid-range that your brain's confused it has no idea what full speed is it's crazy like if you watch a distance runner come to one of my practices now i'm not going to say my high school because my distance coach is fantastic. They, his, his kids run fly tens all the time. But if you bring a normal distance kid to one of my practices and we're running fly tens, they'll probably run 30 of them before they hit their fastest time. Not all, maybe 20, maybe 10, but they can't run it on their first or second time because they've never experienced it before. They've experienced submaximal and be able to do that over and over and over and over again. So I always tell them it's the speed barrier. You got to break through the speed barrier. Once you do that, now you free yourself. Because all distance running is, is if you're running at 15 miles per hour, that's your maximum you can run. And I can run 20 miles per hour. I'm just going to run at 70%. You've got to run at 90% to max me. I'm You're burning more energy. I can just jog and run faster than you, right? So it still comes down to speed or velocity no matter how it shakes out. Even in football, you reach the point of contact faster than someone who bench presses 500, you're still going to win. You're going to win the point of attack. You're going to win the management of the collision. Absolutely. And so you mentioned touching on, so if you're going to hit high velocity, you're going to use your ISOs and you're going to use sprint work. That was something that I wanted to touch on with you because I haven't seen it covered in the Patreon yet, is your, mm -hmm. your implementation of sprint work. What does that kind of look like for you in, in your maybe in your private sector and in your high school sector, like how are we implementing that? Are we racing a lot? Is it more flying tens and timed? Like what, what's kind of approach there? How often are we doing that? How often are we able to do it? Are we are we kind of spreading myths with some of like how how often we're able to sprint? Like what are kind of what's kind of your approach to implementing yeah. sprinting? So when we sprint, we sprint maximum all the time and we time it. So if we're doing maximum velocity, we're timing everything electronically. They're going to know exactly how fast they ran, when they ran the fastest before that, when their drop off is, when they reach, when they can't do anymore. And one of the best things about sprint training is keeping it above 93% of your maximum, right? So I have charts posted all over 
where we run up on the hallways or whether it's on the track, I used to have it on our shed. What drop-offs, if you hit a certain time in a fly 10, a fly 20, a fly 30. So they would compete to stay out there as long as they could to be within 93% of their maximum or 97%, whatever drop-off we were training at that time. So it was instant feedback. Oh, you ran one, you ran under your time, you got one more shot. If you don't get it, you're done. Well, coach, I've only done three. Sorry. Johnny's done 18. Well, that's the difference. Johnny's hitting it right now. You're not. So you either got to figure out how to do it or you're tired and you're done. So why would I want to have you run 10 more and just get used to running slow? So that's one way is, is we'll sprint. And when we do that on a track team, we're probably doing it three times a week. Okay. Um, in my gym, we spend more time accelerating. Right. So whether we're doing some type of horizontal plyometric into a sprint, but everything, again, is still going to be timed and it's still going to be maximal. Now, sometimes we don't have the timing system set up in there in an acceleration zone. We're watching it. And if it's changing, then we're done. But we always want it to be fast and explosive. And you can sprint every time you come in there in the short range. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, when when you're having that 18 versus three and that that drop off, one of the things that a lot of coaches like, is there a point in which you're you're worried about that volume that they're 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 getting in or out? Because you you hear coaches talk about that. It's like, well, I'm going to cut them off at this volume. I'm going to cut them off here. Um, and it's kind of like the pre-prescribed five reps to where you talked about the one kid should be done at three and the one kid should be done at 18. And we have the the pre-prescribed five reps to hit that volume for the soft tissue like work. Like uh, what's kind of your thought process around that and th that kind of approach to sprint training? Well, if you hit that volume at the soft tissue work and you get injured on your sixth one or your fifth one, none of that shit mattered, right? So I'm only interested in what you can produce at that given time. And if you can't produce it, th that day ain't the day to train it. Get out of it, right? Because if you hit your fastest time and the next time you drop off, oh, well, Hey, you got a world record. You ran your time, your fastest time. Great. Go home. Yeah, but only ran three. So what? You still ran what you needed to run. Or a kid who stays within that 3% drop off for 15 reps, you increase your capacity to run fast. You didn't run any faster, but you were able to maintain those speeds for way longer than you ever have. Right? Because the last time you ran three, this time you ran 15 at the same speed. Right? So there's either increasing the capacity to run faster or your overall speed goes up. That's what we're battling for every time. I'm not interested in how much volume I'm putting through because every time you sprint, it creates a neural callus, right? So if you're sprinting, I'm not worried about the volume of sprints that you have because that's what we do, right? So you're going to come back a day later, maybe the next day, two days later, and you're still sprinting. So you're going to get that volume, but you're going to get it with high quality reps, with with this, because this is something that American coaches are uh, just from talking about, they're pretty scared to sprint their American football players um, yeah. for fear of hamstrings and quads. What would you what would you have to say to them? There, there's a big American like football population that listens to this. Um, I, I we, we sprint our athletes two times a week and we we really don't have any issues with anything. And we didn't in the college sector either with pulling hamstrings when we're running it. But it still seems like a very like like scared approach where they had a bad experience with a hamstring or something like that, like. How, how do you like, how does your brain work with that, with the American football world where they're, they're not track athletes and you, you're American football coach too, um, in sprinting those athletes and approaching it in a way of we're going to sprint twice a week and we're going to do this with um, athletes that are not sprinters. 
it's neurocalysis. You, you got to do it to, to get good at it. You can't be afraid of it and then hope to get good at it. I mean, that makes no sense because you're going to have to run fast in your game. And, um, you know, I, I love listening to all the GPS guys. They all talk about, oh, he hasn't hit his volume. Well, they realize that they better get those high speed runs in. So why not just give it to them on a daily basis and let them ease their way in with an auto regulation based off of what they need, not on what somebody else did based off what they need. So, you know, I, I don't think your program set up very well if you're afraid that high speed runs are going to get you hurt. I mean, I don't see how that makes any sense. I mean, that's what we're training for to run at high velocities. Um, now, maybe, I don't know, before state championship game, you're worried that someone might get hurt two days before running a high. Oh, okay. But that's certainly not going to be the case coming in. I mean, back in the day, college programs used to lift all summer long. Then they'd come in and test the 40. The stupidest thing to do in the world. They're lift, 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 run, run a 40, and five guys pull their hamstring. Well, no shit, because that's what your training led to. It's the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I actually, I just was writing right before uh, you got on. I was just writing a post about how, like, if you wanna, if you wanna see it expressed, you should express it, and if you fear it being expressed, like, you should not avoid it because you, you're not going to, like, you talked about, like, you, you're training to sprint fast on the field. Like, it's gonna happen. Like, th th that's the thing that's right. like, it's so <laughs> common sense if you just watch the sport. Like, if you just watch, like, your whole point, like, this dude is gonna sprint fast on the field. Like, why are we not? This is preparing them for that. Like, I love the neural callus. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. Like that neural callus saying, but like you, you got to prepare them for it. Like just because you're, you're fearful of it, like it's not going to change reality. It's almost like we, we change reality in our head of like, um, that's exactly I mean, what we do in yeah. our head. They change it. I, I, I'm going to tell you one time I, I, I was speaking at a clinic and I was talking about bench pressing and volume and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I don't, a really prominent strength coach set up. So you can't bench press three times a week, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I bench press 60 days in a row. I've never gotten hurt. I've, I've gotten stronger. I, what are you talking about? I don't understand that. Like, well, what do you mean? You're bench. I bench press 60 days in a row. Well, what'd you do that for? I go, actually to piss people off like you guys. Cause you tell me I can't do it. Why can't I, if it's, if it's of maximal, I can do it. And look at the way the Bulgarians trained, right? Now, some people will say they had drugs, they had this, that, whatever. But the reality is, is if you stimulate maximally, you will recover maximally. There's nothing to worry about. I still bench press just about every day. That's what I do. <laughs> it's funny. The guy, I was visiting an NFL team, and the guy's like, what are you doing today? I said, bench press. He said, what do you do for your lower body? I said, bench press. He said, what are you talking about? Don't you squeeze every muscle in your body when you bench press? That's what it is. Why would I have to do anything else? I bench press. Not because I want a big bench press, because that's what gets me ready to go. I can, figured it out. I do one exercise. Can, can, you, can you tell me about that experiment with the six days in a row? Yeah, I, I was doing oscillating isometrics. I was doing rapidly firing isometrics. I was doing heavy bench presses. I was doing five-second isometric holds. I, I did everything. I just changed each time I did it, and it was awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> That's freaking awesome. I, I I love that stuff because it, it's. I mean, I, we talked about the reality thing, but it's like 
the, the a lot of these coaches just say things without ever actually like doing right. it. Like like you're able right. to say this because you've actually been pressed six days in a row. Something right. I've actually been, and I'm not saying this is smart, but like we'll do like I'll do um especially if I'm if I'm in a full meathead like range, like I'll one rep max on pretty much everything every single day, and I've done it for every single thing for the past four months. I have not I have not been hurt. I have not felt bad. Right. Like right. and I used to be in this mindset of like. And I was really, I was really in college deeply in the mindset of like, never one rep max, um, never push it, never like compressed him. Like you're going to hurt yourself, which like, maybe there's some, but I was like, I was so much in that mindset and I was just stuck. And I was just thought because somebody told me this, that I thought it was right. So I'd stay away from completely. And like recently I just, it was totally just like a mess around experiment. I've done it for like four months straight every single day. And I've never had, I haven't had any issues with it. Like every single day. There you go. I mean, it, it, but nobody's ever going to try that because they're like, oh, no, no, no. I read this article and I did. I'm like, a, like a couple of weeks ago, we were given this was the exercise in the gym. It was all right. Get your bench press of about 85 percent of your max. You're going to lower it over a five count. When do I press it up, coach? When I say go. So everybody's going. I say go at a random time. So you don't get to push it off your chest. You, you, you go, when I say go, you got to reverse it there. You got to reverse it down here. It's random. So if you want to own that weight, own it at any position, I tell you to go in. Right. So they're like, where, where the hell did you learn that? I go, I don't know. I just thought of it because you don't get a chance to predict when it's coming. You just got to be able to do it. So one of the things is randomness and randomness at velocity. Like we'll, we'll start acceleration runs where I'm knocking them with a football bag. Why do I want to do that? Well, when do you ever start in a three-point stance with nobody beating down your neck or hitting you or bumping you? Or if you're a defensive lineman, you're not getting hit. You're not coming off the ball that clean. Let's put you in different positions. See how fast you are. So can you restore your balance and then complete the task? Yeah, solve the movement problem at hand, and that that's something that absolutely. That, yeah, we talk a lot about that. A lot of our sprint variations, like okay, you, you're fast here, but like you said, like are you fast in any other position ever? You know, like and right. that like you, anything that you're actually going to find yourself in. And the bench press one is cool too, because it's like if you're able to take the value out of the exercise itself and you're able to put that value into the stimulus that you want and the goal that you want, you're able to do things like that. You're able to come up with that. Um, at, at, at my go call, we're going to come back up. But when your value is in the bench press itself and the number itself, you're never right. able to detach from that and actually get the stimulus and goal that you want. Yep. I mean, we, we've also done it with heart rate where, you know, we're going to do maximum bench pressing and we're going to, I like this one. We'll go, we'll go 90% of our one rep max. You bench press it. And you've got 30 seconds to rest. And then you do it again. Well, how many sets am I doing, coach? Until you can't do it anymore. Well, I only did two. All right. Next time, try to get more. You can't recover yourself in 30 seconds. But guess what? In a football play, you better. Because all football is is maximal 30-second rest. We huddle up and you get out and here we go again. So let's see what you can do in that exercise. And what's, what's this look like long-term when, when you're, when you're programming it? So you, you're, you're saying a lot of times like, okay, next time we're going to do this. Like, how, are you, are you mapping this like periodization, like long-term in advance? No. Is it like daily? No. Like how, how are, how are you mapping I that? I do it based off of what I see. Okay. Like I, that's one thing I've never done. I've never bought into periodization. Same. I really don't like, I, I look at it like from afar and go, yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe this, but. Here's the deal. If I wake you up in the middle of the night and you say you run a four two, 
you better be able to run a four two at three o'clock in the morning or else it, it's not really applicable. If you can't jump 40 inches in the air, if I, you know, walk into like this, I'll tell you one of the things I used to do with Nikki Marino, the guy who runs my gym. So we'd be in there and we're, he was fantastic. You talk about numbers, that freaking kid, he was 175 pounds. He could bench press two and a quarter, 30 times vertical jump, 42 inches. He was ridiculous. Run a four, three forty. Was he the one so jumping used, off the top of that thing that you yes, have in the video? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like I didn't have anything inch. high enough. And people would say to me, what did you do for his vertical jump training? Actually, the other guy who works in my gym used to say, I was looking at his book. Man, you did some crazy things. What were you thinking programming wise? I go, I don't know. Who, who's trained a guy who's jumped over 42 inches? I've trained one. I don't know. He's like, so you were just guessing? I'm like, yeah, I'm just stimulating. See what happens. Recover and do it again. But anyways, he... um. He would be in the gym and he'd come in and you know, he'd do his warm up and we're benching. I go, oh, set the thing up right now. Jump 40. He'd go, do what? Jump 40. And he'd go over there and he'd jump it. So I knew no matter what, he was a 40-inch vertical leap guy. Louis Simmons came in the one time and he was doing his thing about pulling sleds in my gym and doing all this. He goes, let me show you how to jump train. I go, you're going to show me how to jump train? He's like, yeah. He goes, we jump up on boxes. So we've never jumped up on boxes in here. We only jump down. He goes, well, how's that going to work? I'm like, well, Nikki, I call him over. He's working with a kid. I go, set that vertical tech thing up at 40 inches for you. So he goes over, he measures himself. I go, now jump it. He goes, the kid hasn't done anything. Jumps up 40 inches. He goes, holy shit. I go, that's nothing. He goes, how the hell do you? I go, he, Nikki, how much do you jump on boxes? He goes, never. In the 10 years I've been training in here, never jumped up once. Louis Simmons was like, I've never seen anything like that. I'm like, that's how we do it. We don't jump up. We just absorb yeah that, that's pretty wild and you you were talking about like you've never periodized you just pay attention and that that made me think it's like if you pay attention the the periodization kind of just happens naturally like i mean it, and it's gonna happen not naturally but almost like just better like you're gonna ebb and flow in the way that you want and make sure that athlete is ready and, and that, that's something like because because the this these coaches will hear what you're saying and be like it's just lazy coaching like he's not mapping everything it's like no what lazy coaching is, is having everything planned out for 52 weeks and keeping that schedule and like having strength one, strength two. How could you be that smart? How could yeah. you be that smart? Like, how can you predict what the hell's good? And then what happens if it doesn't work? Like you do all these periodization. How about this? I tell you what, if Nikki went to a tryout, which he's gone to a few, and someone says to me, what's he going to jump? I just, 40 inches. Oh my God, he jumped 41. Are you excited? No, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> I had a guy, <laughs> I trained a kid who went to Harvard, running back. So his dad, real prominent businessman in the area, comes in. He's like, listen, I've heard about the things you do. I don't believe much in anything that you do, but I do see things that work. I don't understand what you do. I'm a finance guy. I like to understand stuff. I don't understand anything you're doing. But I know it works. I want to I, I wanna pay you to train my son. So I'm like, uh, I'm not interested. So he said, what do you mean? He had more money than you can imagine. So he comes back the next week and he goes, I want you to train my son. I'm like, okay, well, what do you want from it? He goes, I want my son to run a four, four. I'm like, oh, great. So do I, so does everybody. He goes, I go, what does he run right now? He goes, he's been clocked at a four, six. It's okay. Let me take him out to the track and then I'll tell you. So he goes out to the track. I time him. He runs four, seven. Fast kid, really strong kid. So he goes, what did he run? I go, he ran 4.7. That's bullshit. He's faster than that. I'm like, okay, he ran 4.7. He goes, well, what can you do with him? I go, I can make him run 4.4. Four. 
I said, but you can't tell me anything that you think. He's like, okay. He goes, I'll tell you what. He threw out an astronomical amount of money. He goes, he runs 4-4. That's yours. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he goes to Harvard's college day, whatever. And his dad's there with his cell phone. And he goes, he's up to run right now. What do you think he's going to run? I go, I told you he's going to run 4-4. He goes, you can't know that. What do you mean? I go, well, what we've been doing in training, he can produce it. So he's on the phone. The kid's running. He's done. He finished. He finished. I said, what do you run? What do you think he ran? I go, 4-4. He goes, he ran 4-3-9. I can't believe it. Holy shit. Blah, 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 blah. He goes nuts. And then he goes, he stops after he's done yelling and screaming. He goes, why aren't you excited? I go, because you asked me what he was going to run. I told you what he was going to run. That's the way it goes. I can't believe you're not even excited. I'm happy for him. He's a wonderful kid. You're nuts, but he's a wonderful kid. <laughs> and he's like, and I can't believe, oh, the money's yours. He came in the next day, put the money right on the table because I've never seen anything like that. But you asked me, that's what he did. You can't get excited for something that should be what you expect. So when, so the answer for periodization is if I planned it to where I know he's going to run four, four on this day, how about this? I knew that kid, that kid ran four, four, probably 10 days in a row before we even went away. It was easy. If he tripped and fall, he was going to get up and run four, <laughs> four. Right. So I'm more into that. Can you produce it to happen over and over and over again? And it's not new anymore. It's not exciting. It's just is what it is your new norm yeah it's real that's right yeah it's not this peak and yeah man i i, I warmed up i activated i did all this shit and now i can jump you know 40 and a half inches on my best day when i'm wearing my high heels and i got that that's too hard <laughs> it is i'm not that smart creating creating beasts and that that's something that um taking it out of the physical world because I, I think this is one piece that i when i heard you talked about it it was i i didn't i haven't seen it on your page before mm -hmm. um and, and you talked about that posture and mindset and one of the cool things is that um it was like the the shoulder back stands like the 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 stands that attention um stands that attention staring at something that you um envision like visualization processes and i thought that stuff was really really cool and you, you even mentioned that it maybe it's not an everyday thing but at mm -hmm. least giving the athlete that tool and and having them exposed to that stuff i loved that thought process and that approach what are kind of some of your thought processes and how you're implementing that with your athletes um for them to kind of use this and wh why do you find that so valuable for for athletes i think having a target i think having um extreme focus go a really long way. And I think a lot of kids aren't focused on anything. So immediately when you make them focus, you're going to see some type of motor output increase. Okay. I, I was talking to a, um, a young strength coach probably a year and a half ago. And he said to me, you know, you do all these extreme slow things. Why do you think they work? And I go, well, I, I think the, the ability to create visualization and then when you move that slow, you have to focus on everything that you're doing and the intent to move that slow. You actually start firing your fast twitch because you're moving so slow that in order to go that slow, your fast twitch has to kick in to move it and continue to move. He's like, well, I don't really understand that. I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Measure your vertical jump. 
And then I want you to do an extreme slow running stride for three minutes. So the start of it, be one leg back. By the end of it, opposite arm forward, leg comes through, all that stuff for three minutes. He's like, well, half of it, I'm not even moving. Correct. You're hardly ever moving, but you're thinking about moving full speed and then go test your vertical jump. Just leave it where you hit the vertex and then go jump. I guarantee you, you'll jump higher. So I don't hear from him in a week. I'm like, oh, that didn't work. He calls me back <laughs> and he's like, coach, I can't believe it. I, I did it the first time I jumped two inches higher. Then I did it the next day and I jumped another inch higher. Then I did it again and I jumped even higher. I can't believe it. I'm like, well, that's what happens when there's that much intent behind something, which we don't do anymore. We all talk about it. We never do it. So one of the things that we did with some of the younger kids in our place was we put a, a picture of their favorite athlete up, put it on the wall, and they stand at attention and they look at that athlete. And if you think about the way we learn to move as kids, you you mimicked. You watched somebody move, and then you developed your movement patterns after that person. Whether it's your mom, your dad, a famous sport athlete on TV, or whatever it is, you will gravitate towards that movement. And um, I believe that has a lot of merit in training. I really do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you said how we learn to move as kids. I think that's probably how we should learn to move as adults too, you know, like, like we, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we changed it for some reason to, because sure of pain, you know, but like the best, like the best in the world are mimicking and creating and doing that. And one of the things I like the intent focus too, this was something that I thought, like, I really got into this, um, like trying to give like a moment of intent uh, the standard attention right before a session. Because like you said, I noticed it. My girlfriend brought me to this like yoga, like this mainstream yoga class. But one of the cool things in it is like when they start, it's like um, set your intention for the class. And I, I just thought that was super cool. It's like I, I was just going to support the girlfriend and, and just go through it, yeah. go through a yoga class with it. But she was talking about setting that intention. I was like, that that is super cool. Because like you said, like when when else do you really do that? Like, like, especially with high school and college athletes that are running like back and forth between classes, between practices, and they're hopping into your session. And it's just, it seems like a lot of days will just go by, like, they don't even notice, like, they're just popping in, um, they're, they're going to run through their lift, they're kind of like this zombie, like, that's just rolling through this lift. But like that, that, that one minute of just like, okay, what, like, why are you here? Like, what, what are you here to do? Like, setting that intention, and then going forth from there, and then like trying to produce that intention. Like, and then that, that's really how you if you're going to sit and do three minutes in an ISO lunge, like you can do that in two ways. You can do that just like half ass, or you can do that with massive intent trying to pull into that position. And you could spend 30 seconds right before your, your training session to set that intent and make sure the rest of the session means something. About 10 years ago, my weight room training sessions at the high school were walk in, put your keys on the shelf, put your cell phone on the shelf, come in, circle up, stand at attention or in a position of power and we'd stay there for two minutes. You can't do anything else but think about what the hell am I doing right now? Then it automatically said, well, I'm here to train. And then everything is different after that. And at first the kids would come in and it became a laugh session or they'd giggle. Or they'd... Then it became kids getting pissed off at kids who weren't quiet, who weren't focusing and the intent. And then you'd see those kids workouts skyrocket and the other kids were kind of goofing off with it not as good. Then they're like, Oh shit, I'm going to do that. Then they started. To, and then it turned into, we stand at attention for the national anthem. There's a lot of things that, that can play into that after that. It's crazy. Why, why did you stop doing that? You see, you said 10 years ago that, um, that 
it, 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 different kids come through at different times. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm a product sometimes of, I go back to my old training logs and I look, I'm going, why do I not do that anymore? And I have to circle back that. I mean, sometimes I have to go out and speak like this to go, shit, I thought of that. Why am I not doing it anymore? You know what I mean? Cause we're always on to the next best thing. And unfortunately that's the nature of humans. But the reality is, is it's a real simple world. You can hold positions, you can absorb force, manage those collisions. You're going to be a really good athlete. Yeah, that's awesome. Last thing I want to cover with you before we uh, before we end this podcast was some of the vestibular work that that mm-hmm. I've seen you start to implement. And again, this is one that I haven't seen covered on the Patreon yet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what what what's kind of your thought process in like approach with a lot of that? You you see a lot of coaches starting to implement a lot of these a lot of these patterns and these movement patterns. Uh, how how are you implementing this with your 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 focus on these extreme patterns? Like, how does that tie into your program and your principles? Um, so, so what I started to realize have Have you heard of Sean Sherman's Square One system? I have not. Research that. Okay. Right? So, all my all my research it, it, it's cyclic. Like it, it's unbelievable. Like with Jay Schroeder stuff, and then finding Sean Sherman. I've gone, oh my God, isometrics has a completely different meaning in terms of brain communication, joint position, where you are in space, threat of the foot hitting the ground and and what your body's going to do to compensate for that. So Jay's stuff match Sean's stuff. And then here comes Matt Bolay with his IP and his posturology mixing in to enhance the positional work that Jay Schroeder showed me. And then all of a sudden, all these things circle back to a healthy brain, right? So your nervous system and your posture, it's just the output of how your brain is working. So people always, oh, if you have slumped shoulders or your your shoulders are like this, everybody's working on a structural component of your posture. But in reality, what sets your posture are your eyes and how they see the horizon and your feet, how they sit on the ground, whether like this, like this. However they are, in your eyes, they start sending information back and forth. That's where you get your posture. So if your eyes are off, you could have a tilted shoulder. Ain't nothing to do with, I got to exercise this to get this to do that. It's if my eye is tracking here and my other eye is tracking there, I now created some type of torsion in my upper body. And if my feet are going the opposite way, now I've created this action in my tibia to my femur and everything is screwed up and it's got nothing absolutely zero to do with anything structurally outside of when you do turn a joint or put a joint in a certain position, the muscle will then hold tension. It doesn't hold tension because you're tight and you have tight hamstrings. It holds it because your nervous system isn't functioning correctly. So your vestibular system is the first thing that develops and it's responsible for every muscle contraction in your body, right? Everybody relates it back to the extensor muscles. And that's great. As your head lifts, when you're a little, little kid, head lifts up, start to develop that extensor chain. That's all vestibular driven. Um, And then when we it, it, it soothes our parasympathetic system, when we start to cry as a baby, what does mom do? Rock them, stimulate the vestibular system, right? When you're on a boat and you get seasick, it's because your eyes can't see the horizon or they lose track of it. It 
instantly goes into your stomach because there's a connection from your vestibular system and your gut and your brain. So all these things are so interwoven into human movement that you have to train the vestibular system or you're not training anybody. And so, you, I really like the, 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 you talked about how it's like, we'll, we'll simplify it to like the muscle because it's like these simple solutions to these massively complex problems yeah. of like, like the whole system's tied in. It's probably not just your trap that you need to like work and do this posture fix, but telling somebody like we have all these, like all this connection is not going like, to, it goes back probably to getting paid too. It's like, if I have a yep. simple solution to like doing, if you do, I, we're going to do a shrug isometric rather than like, okay, we're going to work this vestibular system. But how do you, how do you implement? The vestibular system training like what how, how are you approaching this well how are you implementing these yeah. things and what are so some of the results kids, we do it? it one or one or two ways so uh one of three ways in the beginning of each training session we rock or we stimulate head movement some way okay so we warm ourselves up by lighting up our whole extensor chain by rocking okay or turning our head in different ways or stimulating some type of balance mechanism okay the second thing we'll do is we'll do it as um, a potentiation. We'll do it before a lift where I think that there's a certain system vestibular wise that is, that is down or not even so your vestibular system is, is what you want is this. It's like the volume control, right? So if you have too much volume on one side, there's not enough output over here. If you do this, it's great. If you did this with just general stuff, you're going to have the same issue elevated right so it's about balancing the vestibular system out so the feedback is the same on both once you do that the body moves cleaner then we can add our head to that so our our vors our vestibular ocular reflex all these different ways you stimulate the vestibular system will all be individual to each athlete so i'll have kids check to see what stimulation they like most so we'll goof around one day before our warmups. We'll find out, is it a horizontal? Is it a vertical? Okay, whatever thing makes them feel better and we'll test it. That's what we're doing to stimulate that day. Does that make sense? So it's yeah. very specific to each kid. Okay, I, I have a couple of questions here. How yep. do you know it's off? Like you, you talked about the balance, you want it between the left and right balance. How are you picking up that something is off and we need to dial one down or bring one up? There's a ton of different muscle testing ways to do it. Meaning like if I turn my head a certain way and I muscle test, I should get strong on one side a week on another side, right? Okay. So you can test that right away, straight away. And then if I know it's off, then I'm stimulating. All right. So that, that's one way to do it. You can just test a range of motion. It'll change. Like if you just did... um like if you held your, like, do this for me. Yep. Give me an internal range of motion, right? Just get an idea of where it is, not trying to force it, right? So if you took your thumb, held it out in front of you, stare at it, okay? And you can relax your arm, put your thumb out in front, right at nose height, and just go back and forth, staring at your thumb. Don't lose focus on your thumb. Go as slow as you need to go to stay focused on your thumb. Good. And once you think you got a pretty good picture on your thumb, you can go a little bit faster. Now, just doing that, you either liked it or you don't like it or nothing's going to happen. So go retest yourself in internal rotation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you liked it. You yeah, liked yeah, it. Now, yeah. let's do this. Go up and down. 
and then okay. see what happens. Make sure you're focused, see it. And your body will tell you if you like it or not. I think that's enough. Try it now. Uh, yeah, stiffer. Didn't... Yeah, you didn't like that. Yeah. All right, so you you so when we're warming up, you're doing a horizontal, not a vertical. Okay. If I'm training you, I might do your vertical just to make sure we're stimulating the parts that your brain didn't like. Right. Okay. But for performance, we're doing this. Why wouldn't I? It just made it just unlocked you. Yeah, it completely unlocked it. Yeah, that was and, completely different. Yeah. And the up and down one locked it like almost instantly exactly. back up. Right. What, so what's the, what? Yep. What, what's the difference between the, the horizontal and vertical? Like what what is that is that telling you anything? It's a, yeah, it's a different part of your your brainstem that's okay. being activated. Um, so yeah, I mean it, again, it doesn't matter what it tells you. What I tell my kids is, did it make you feel better? Yeah, coach, look what I did. Okay, great. You know, a lot of times we'll do it for pain. We'll do it for shoulder range of motion. They'll be like, oh, I feel great. Well, let's do that before you bench press. Why not? Yeah. So they don't really need to know the mechanisms, but it's very brain stem driven, whether it's the pons and the medulla. Um, yeah. And we're just giving it what it needs at that particular time. Your brain will tell you what it likes. Absolutely. And then, so... So you, you hear a lot of people talking about like spinal flows and, and implementing some of these things, um, mm -hmm. the neck movements, the, the spine movements every single day. Is this something that you're seeing long-term growth in to where it's it, it, the vestibular system is long-term like leveling up? Or is it something where daily you kind of want to check in with it? And it's, it's I think it's daily kinda... you want to stimulate it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you think about it as kids, we're constantly moving and jumping and falling and swinging and going on rides. As we get older, we do less and less and less of that. We do more of I squat, I run, but my head's not moving. Right. So I get kids in different positions, turn their head. You amazing what happens. Oh my God. I get it. so, but again, when we play football or we play any sport, your head has to move. It has to. So there's that. Then there's, can you expand your, then there's the visual system. There's so much to it that it's crazy, but even your visual system can tell you a lot about how your nervous system is responding. We'll do peripheral testing to see where our visual system is shut off. And when you get tired and you get fatigued, it closes, right? So that's when it's time to stop training or when here comes an injury. They did research on concussion. The guy Clark out of Cincinnati. You, When you can see it, you don't get concussed. When you don't see it, you get concussed because you can't, you can, if you brace for it, you're good. You'll, you'll be able to manage that collision. When your periphery closes down, and part of it is the football helmet, you can't see it, concussion. If you can expand your periphery a little bit more, you can see it coming. So we train the visual system that way. That's awesome. Is there any for resources for coaches that want to get into this? Uh, the Patreon page, I'm assuming, is going to have something on this as well. Yeah, for for, for us, here's what I think I, I've done pretty well. And I, I don't think I've done anything really well, but I think pretty well I've taken the neurological world and I've, I've blended it into the training world. And it's it's more profound for us than it is for somebody recovering from a concussion or a pulled hamstring. It's, it, it's better for performance. Just like you showed me with that. Are you kidding me? If, if I'm stimulating your vestibular system because you had a stroke and you've lost certain part of your body movement, 
but I can do that to help you bench press 20 more pounds or run faster. Or man, I had a short shoulder. I can pitch today because it doesn't hurt anymore. It's way more profound for me. Anyways, I feel like I've actually found how, how to combine these systems, which is kind of neat. And, you know, I, I don't think it's good until you understand all of it. Like the ISOs, altitude drops, oscillating. When you start to understand how the body moves, how it produces force, how it absorbs force, then you can start to add in and layer in these neurological stimulations. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's one of the big things I'm a big fan of. So I'll, I'll urge all the listeners to go check that out is that you have built it up like the very first month was all on posture, like posture, yeah. like it, the whole yeah. the whole hour long video was on posture, like starting then, off. The and, very... and then wait till we, we start here with posture it's at the bottom row. But when we get up to the top and we start talking neurology, you're going to see that that posture comes right back up to the top. Because when you stimulate your eyes and your feet, now you're managing your posture from a neurological input, not the physical input that we're trying to. Exactly. And then that, that's one of the cool things is like every video, even so far, is like has been tied in from from the previous one. And you kind of see how you're building up that system, which I, I think is important because these a lot of people want like the quick hit, like the, the the dopamine, like, OK, give me the exercise, give me the thing. But it's like, OK, now this is the deep understanding of how all of these things tie in together. So then you can take it and like go like like you've done with Jay, like you took the stuff and now applied it to your own program. Like that, that that's one of the cool things. I think like you're educating people to go create their own programs based off the principles behind it, not the exercise selection. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Coach, thank you for being on. Thank you for the time. This was awesome. All right. Let's continue to talk. I can learn just as much as as you can as I can. That'd be great. I'd love talking. Absolutely. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.